So if I could just ask you to indulge me for just sort of a personal matter. Uh, when you exit today, uh, you're going to notice that I had a blood vessel burst in my eye. Uh, this is something that appeared after I exercised on Friday morning, and I, I kind of want to prevent having the same conversation over and over again <laughs> as you exit. Uh, and this is something that I understand happens uh, frequently to people over age 50. Yay! <laughs> I've reached that point. Uh, and so, anyway, uh, I don't have pink eyes, so don't be afraid to, to shake my hand as you go through, but I, I just wanted to let you know what was up with my eye when you, when you walk through with it. Uh, I've already had people in stores stare at me uh, as I've gone through. Um, also, uh, I, I just want to let you know, I noticed that at the end of our K-group questions, I have the last question is very similar to last week's. Feel free to... Uh, Make up your own K-group question at the end if, if that's pushing you a little bit too much from, from the previous week. Uh, but let's, uh, let's go to the Father in prayer. And as we do so, I'm going to ask if we can to, to pray for Andrew Record's wife, Megan. He is the pastor at Haven Baptist. Uh, Megan was taken to the hospital uh, late this past week uh, with some heart issues. She's now at home and she's on a monitor. Uh, but let's make sure that we lift this dear family and brother up uh, to the Lord right now. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you as a church whose foundation is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And because of that, we are united in what Christ has done on our behalf. And our faith is in what Christ has done on our behalf alone. And so, Lord, it is good for brothers and sisters to pray for one another, to be united in one another, even when we are parts of different congregations and so I lift up our sister Megan to you. I pray, Lord, that you would help the doctors to be able to diagnose uh, her heart issues. We pray for Andrew as he cares for. We pray for the children of that family. And we pray for Haven Baptist, that as they care for their pastor and his wife, that, Lord, in the midst of it, they would be a wonderful gospel testimony uh, to those on the outside who are watching. And for ourselves this morning, Lord, we pray that you would enlighten us, that you would allow us to understand your word better. And that, Lord, you would allow us to have clarity on issues that can seem very confusing. But, Lord, we do want to recognize that your Holy Spirit speaks with authority through his word. Therefore, Lord, we want to submit ourselves to whatever he is teaching us to this morning. So may you receive all the glory as we seek to live lives worthy of our calling. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, we've already had a few controversial subjects pop up in the first chapter of Genesis 1. I see no reason not to continue the controversy in chapter 2 as we discuss the nature of the seventh day of creation and whether or not Christians are obligated to observe it, and if so, how should it be observed? There's been a lot of ink spilt over this issue. So again, let me say from the outside, if you disagree with some of my conclusions— I do not see you as the devil or the enemy. I just think you're wrong. <laughs> I, I am happy to discuss the various views on the Sabbath day with you as we seek to have iron sharpen iron. But I have found that the primary reasons there is so much frustration over this subject has more to do with how people were introduced to keeping the Sabbath than being guided and bound by the Word of God. The way I was raved shaped my thinking on Sunday activities. 
Uh, my family went to church on Sundays, and in my early years, my mother, who was raised in a very strict conservative Baptist home, always fixed a, a special lunch after church, which was usually followed by an evening meal of leftovers or sandwiches. My Methodist-raised father, on some occasions, would sneak out on Sunday evenings and purchase a bag of Tanner's fast food hot dogs and bring them to the family. Oh, the deliciousness of sin in such a moment as that was. It was delightful. I still crave those hot dogs to this day. But with the exception of the morning and evening worship services, we stayed at home. It wouldn't have mattered if we wanted to go shopping because nothing was open. Everything was closed on Sundays. But if you had asked me, does your family observe a Sabbath day, I would have said yes. Though I could not give you an explanation as to why it was on Sunday and not on Saturday, nor why my mother loosened up one day and allowed us to eat at the S&S cafeteria after church, or especially after we changed churches, it was just what we always did. I didn't think much of it. Go to Sunday school, go to church, come home, eat uh, our, our supper, uh, go back to church for training union and evening worship service, and then come home and eat leftovers. That is what the Waddell household did. And how I was raised definitely shaped my thinking on the Sabbath. It was only when I came into contact with other Christians that I realized there were varied views on the seventh day. If you drive down I-65, you will be provoked by billboards that say things like, Saturday is the Lord's day and Sunday is the devil's day. And I'm sure there are varied opinions within this congregation about what you should do on a Sunday. If you should go out to eat or only eat at home. If you're allowed to watch football or there should be no TV whatsoever. Which views are correct? As I teach this morning, I may tread on one of these strongly held beliefs. And again, I know there might be other interpretations. And I would encourage you to remain bound to your conscience. Remain bound to your conscience, what God is teaching you. Now, we're going to begin with the first mention of the Sabbath day in the Scripture. And of course, that's in the creation account. And I want to start there, and then we want to see how the seventh day was observed in the period of the Mosaic Law. And by that, I mean how the Jewish people viewed it between the giving of the law through Moses until the coming of Christ. And then we should look at what Jesus has to say about the Sabbath day and then follow that up with what his followers understood Jesus to teach regarding it within the practice of the church, which was composed of both the Jews and Gentiles alike. And then I want to conclude with a few applications at the end that might help us rightly observe a Sabbath. So let's view the Genesis account first. If you will, turn back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, again, page 2 on your pew Bible. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, I want to keep reminding us over and over again, the Bible is a book about God. Genesis is a book about God. We need to be looking at what God is revealing about himself here. And there are three items to take note within these verses. The first thing that we should see is that we have the conclusion to the creation process. God has created his cosmic temple, so to speak, where he will interact with his creation. 
God resides more than just in the temple in Jerusalem. He spoke through the prophet Isaiah, and he said, Thus saith the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. He completed the heavens and the earth for his own glory. And the word host here in verse 1 extends to anything in the universe that we could observe, as in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 19. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven. You be drawn away and you bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. Moses wanted to be very clear here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Everything that exists was created by Yahweh for his glory. There are no other gods that exist outside of the idols that we make within our own hearts. God is sovereign over all. Everything that exists belongs to him, and he declared what he created to be very good. It was exactly as he intended it to be. Now, the second item I need to point out to you is the word that's translated in your Bibles as rested in verses 2 and 3 is actually not the word rest, but the Hebrew word sabbat, which is more accurately translated as ceased. So a more literal translation would be this, and you can follow along as you look at it, and on the seventh day, God finished his work or completed what he set out to accomplish that he had done, and he ceased on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God ceased from all his work that he had done in creation. Now you may ask me, why do our Bibles translate this as rested? Well, I'm glad you asked. I will explain why in just a few minutes. But we should pay attention here. Everything that God had set into motion with his creation was done. God does not speak on this day. In fact, he won't speak again chronologically until chapter 3, verse 9. There is no need to look for anything new. What God accomplished in creating this universe was perfect and good. Our current world is spoiled by sin. But that was not so at the beginning. And what awaits us in the future is not something new or foreign to our imagination. But the universe fully redeemed and made anew. When we see each other in eternity, we will not see something alien when we gaze upon each other. You will see a real Blair, a real Brian, a real Daniel, yet without sin. I cannot emphasize this enough. We can get so tangled up with the concept of God rested that we miss the important point that God was done creating. There was nothing more that he needed to add or to improve upon in what he made. It was perfect and orderly as he intended. And with our third point, we should note the variance with the other created days. There is no speech by God, nor does anything new occur. The narrator tells us here what occurred. In Jewish thinking, seven will come to represent the number of completion. It's why it's a major theme in the book of Revelation. God completed and ceased his labor. And three times the narrator emphasizes the seventh day. 
But we do not have the chronological framework from the previous days of there was evening and there is morning. What we do have is a blessing and a sanctifying in verse 3. Blessing implies being fruitful and multiplying in abundance. And making it holy means that God has set this apart for himself. When we get to the end of the creation week, what we have is a perfect sin-free universe that God has set up for mankind to steward and to be in communion with him. And on the seventh day, God is done with his work. He is enthroned in his cosmic temple, pouring out divine blessing for what would seemingly be for all of eternity. Now, this universe is to be set in motion as he intended, and it is all for him. The final day is set aside for his sovereignty. It is God's rule for all of eternity for what he has created. So now we should look at the Mosaic Law and what it teaches about the seventh day. Remember, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were composed during the lifetime of Moses. Therefore, we're not wrong in viewing what the Holy Spirit leads Moses to write elsewhere as it relates to Genesis. Both writings would be contemporary with one another. Within the covenantal law of Israel, Moses institutes three Sabbath periods. A Sabbath day the Sabbath year, and the year of Jubilee. Now, I want to focus on the first of these as it's going to have the most relevance to our discussion and make a few minor comments on the other two. If you will, turn to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16. This is found on page 58 of your pew Bible. Here we have the first mention of a Sabbath day, and it's given to us before the giving of the law. Moses and the people, as you're turning there, Moses and the people are fleeing from Egypt to the promised land. As they make their way there through the wilderness, God provides the people with a bread-like substance called manna that literally falls from the sky to feed these hundreds of thousands of people each day. The people people were only to eat that day's worth of food. They were not to collect any extra for further days as God is demonstrating his provision in giving them this day's daily bread. Anything extra they collected would be spoiled by the next morning. But the lone exception is on the sixth day. They were to gather double on that day as God would not be providing manna on the seventh. And here's what we read in Exodus chapter 16, verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. An omer is about a liter. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, this is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept until the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded. It is a Sabbath to the Lord or excuse me, commanded them, and it did not stink, and there was no worms in it. Moses said to them, eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. 
So the people rested on the Sabbath day. Now, this is the first place we see the Sabbath in practice. And by being obedient, by ceasing their labor of gathering, the Lord is demonstrating in their lives his perfect care for them as he provided for their needs. Note the language here in verse 29. The Sabbath was given as a gift to the people. The second occasion that this day is mentioned is in Exodus 20 when the Ten Commandments are given. Turn a few pages over to the right to Exodus chapter 20. We find it in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, note in verse 8, we have the word remember. It's not obey, but remember. And that is because Moses is referring back to the time in the wilderness in chapter 16. They were to continue an observance of the Sabbath day. This was not new to the Jews. They had already been keeping it since the manna episode. Note also, this is where Moses specifically says that Yahweh rested in verse 11, which is why our English translations use the word rest in Genesis 2. And it's in conjunction with what the people are to do on the seventh day. They are not to work, but to rest in God's sovereignty. We are told why they are to observe a Sabbath in Exodus chapter 31, verses 13, and also in 17. It says there, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Not working, but resting on the seventh day, was to be a covenantal sign between God and the Jews, whom God sanctified to set apart for himself. When other nations saw Israel ceasing from their labors on the seventh day and still thriving, they would know that Israel was God's special nation. We're told in Leviticus chapter 23 that the seventh day is also when the people were to gather for their sacred assembly. This was a legal obligation upon them all. But we need to look at one more reference. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Now hang in here with me. All right, this is important. It's going to clear up a lot of confusion. This is found on page 150 in your pew Bible. Deuteronomy means second law. Now at this point, the Jews have been wandering 40 years in the wilderness because they feared to enter the land that God had promised them the first go around. Now they're at the borders of that same land, once again about to take it by the power of their God. And this is the second time that Moses presents the law to the people. And there is something new here. Now first, note the word observe, not remember, as in Exodus chapter 20. This is Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. 
But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And here's the new added part here. Verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. It's not just that the people were to remember the manna incidents here, but they were to remember the entire process of Yahweh delivering them out of slavery in Egypt and that he has established them by his own power. That's why you have the word, therefore. It connects the Sabbath with God's redemptive power that happened when he delivered the people out of slavery. And as a sign of being those who were delivered by Yahweh, they were to observe the Sabbath, a day of rest, God did his work in delivering them, and now they may rest in what he has done. Now, in addition to the seventh day, Moses also instituted the seventh year where any crop-producing land was to remain fallow for the entire year, giving that land refreshment. And in Leviticus 25, we're told about the year of Jubilee. This occurred on the 50th year of seven consecutive periods of seven years. On this year, all debts were erased. Any property that had been held in collateral for those debts were returned. And anyone who had been indentured for a debt was to be released. So when we get the big picture concerning the Sabbath day, it was a day to be observed by ceasing from one's labor in order to reflect on being delivered by a God who kept his promise to redeem his people from slavery. They were to be refreshed by contemplating their God of deliverance. Sadly, what was meant to be a blessing on the people was often neglected. The Lord, through the prophet Jeremiah, warns the people of Judah once again, observe the Sabbath, otherwise they're going to be removed from the land. And they were. And even after the exile, once the people return, Nehemiah has to chastise the people for rejecting the Sabbath commandment. Now, let's move forward to the first century in the time of Jesus. The Jews have been restored to their land, and it's typical that the legalistic Pharisees would begin to focus on what it means to cease labor rather than to rest in the Lord's provision and in his deliverance from Egypt. So they come up with all of these extra rules about what one can and cannot do on the Sabbath. Things like, could you cook? Could you travel? Could you even pick a fresh apple off the tree and it not be considered work? In some ways, you can kind of understand the legalism. They didn't want to lose Yahweh's favor again. But in doing so, they missed the whole point of why it was instituted in the first place, to be a day of celebrating their God who was sovereignly in control and could deliver them out of their troubles. Jesus himself had to fight against the attitude at the end of of Mark chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. The Pharisees wanted to reprimand his disciples for, for grabbing grain off the stalks and eating them as that was considered harvesting and therefore work. Jesus had to remind them the Sabbath was made for man, 
not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That's Matthew, or Mark chapter 2, verses 27 through 28. And to prove his point, in the next chapter, he heals on the Sabbath day, doing good to his fellow man. And the Pharisees resent him for it, and they want to see him dead because Jesus was not following their rules. But remember those words when Jesus said that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. In Matthew's account of the same event, just prior to that grain incident where the disciples were harvesting grain and eating it, in chapter 11, Jesus speaks of rest. And he juxtaposes the word rest by using the word yoke. Yoke here is a way of talking about his teaching. We don't think of someone putting a yoke upon you as being restful. But he says that it is his teaching and who he is that brings rest. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and you will learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. If this is the case, then Jesus is true rest from our labors. He is the Lord of rest and ceasing labor. So we need to ask, how? How is Jesus this? If you will, turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. This is found on page 1001 of your pew Bibles. Now we're going to stay here in Hebrews now for the duration. But we need to see what the writer says here about Jesus from the outset. Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. Notice how this connects with what we learned last week about Jesus being the ultimate image of God. God the Son is the heir of all things, and he is also through whom the world was created. He is the exact imprint of God's nature, and he upholds the universe. And look at the second sentence of verse 3. After making purification for sins, he sat down. He rested at the right hand of God the Father. According to this, Whatever was done that was impure by sin, Jesus makes pure. How? Our author explains how Jesus did this a little further in Hebrews chapter 10. If you will, turn there with me. This is on page 1006. In the chapter before this one, the writer of Hebrews said that Jesus entered into the holiest of places, into the very presence of God's heavenly temple, what the earthly tabernacle and temple were meant to portray. And here's what Jesus did, unlike the priest within the earthly temple. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. 
And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus offered himself as the perfect high priest and as the perfect sacrifice to atone for his sins. And his work as the high priest was done when he sat down. Those of us being sanctified now, his offering has made us perfect. Therefore, we're no longer, we no longer have to worry about measuring up or figuring out how to properly observe the Sabbath day because Christ has finished his work and he has made us holy and acceptable to a holy God. Nothing more has to be done from our redemption from the slavery of sin. He sat down because his work, like the Father's work on the seventh day, was done. And he now reigns forever because he has redeemed us from sin. All the demands of holiness of God have been met in Christ Jesus. The only thing we're waiting for is the final consummation of our redemption in the renewed heaven and the renewed earth. Paul would say it this way from Colossians chapter 2. Listen to this. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It was done. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Let no one disqualify you. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Paul, who at one time was the strictest of Jews, can say this because Jesus met the standards of the law. How you celebrate the Sabbath has nothing to do with how you merit God's favor. God is not more pleased with you on a Saturday or a Sunday than he is on any other day of the week. That is because when he looks at you at any moment, he sees you covered with the righteousness of his son 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There is not a second that God looks upon you, believer, and he doesn't see his son, and the truth, worthy as the lamb, does not ring out. This is why the early church in Acts chapter 20 and in 1 Corinthians 16 started meeting on the first day of the week to celebrate Christ's completed work when he rose from the grave. It was proof that his work was finished. It was done. They wanted to celebrate their redemption, that everything had been done on that historical day in history. And so the early church dismissed the legal obligation of the Sabbath. Now hear me right. They dismissed the legal obligation, not the practice of a day of worship. And Paul writes, members of the Gentile church to be careful 
that they don't slip into some type of observance of the law rather than having complete faith in Christ. In fact, Paul thinks that would be an abomination. He wrote to the Gentile believers in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 4, he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature were not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want, uh, you want to once be uh, once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are, which was one who is under by grace, by faith, not observing the law. To the Christians in Rome, Paul was aware that there were some who wished to observe worship on the seventh day and those who would gather on the first. So he writes in Romans chapter 14, verse 5, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honors of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, and we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the living and of, of the dead and of the living. What matters is that they were unified over what Jesus did on their behalf, not what day they desired to worship over. After all, Jesus is Lord of all over every single day of the week. Now, hopefully you stayed in Hebrews. Turn to Hebrews chapter 3 because like the Lord's Supper and like baptism, our observance of ceasing from our labors can be a teaching ordinance. The writer of Hebrews was trying to convince his Jewish readers it was futile to go back to the law because Jesus, which is far better, has secured our place before the Lord, and because of this, we can look forward to an eternal rest. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your forefathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. And I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now note the writer just quoted from Psalm 95, a psalm written by David some 500 years after the Exodus, when it was supposedly the great kingdom of Israel at that point. It speaks of this time within the wilderness when those who did not believe God's promise were not allowed to enter into the promised land. So the writer says here in verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may, have, may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses and with whom he had provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Now look at this. This is huge. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, lest us fear, uh, let us fear lest any of you seem to have failed to have reached it. There is a rest still forthcoming that was not achieved in the promised land. Something better, a rest that even David wrote about that was not achieved when the kingdom of Israel was established. Verse 2, for good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard they did, not, did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest as he has said, I swore my wrath. They shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Look at this, verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision and the soul of the spirit and of the joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Our work now is to believe in Christ. In faith, we believe in Jesus and what he did for us alone at the cross according to the word of God. That is our work now. We believe and we put our trust in that alone, not going back to the law. But one day, that faith, that belief will not be difficult for us no matter what the world throws at us. We are looking forward to our true Sabbath rest. We will dwell with him for all of eternity as he intended for us to be at the very outset. All made possible, not through anything that we have done, but in what Christ alone has done. That is why Paul says, now faith, hope, and love abide, but these three, but the greatest is love. One day, our faith will be made sight. Our hope will be fully consummated by standing before us will be Christ, and there'll be nothing but endless love for endless days, all because Jesus satisfied every demand needed at the cross. Just like creation, when God ceased his labor, it was finished. 
It was done. Just like when God delivered the Jews out of slavery in Egypt, it was finished. It was done. And our Lord Jesus has redeemed us from the legal demands of the law, given us his righteousness. It's finished and done. So very quickly, a few applications. Now we can see why Christians gathered on Sunday instead of Saturday. It inaugurated a new way of looking to Christ for our salvation alone, not the law. It is Christ that makes us distinct, not our behavior under the law. So what does this mean to a day of worship? Let me provide you with three thoughts, and then I'm going to give you like a little 3.5, a fourth one there. First, Christians need to meet one another, and they need a weekly meeting together. Believers need to come in contact with one another. We cannot escape that in Scripture. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Colossians 3 say we need one another in order to grow in our sanctification and to be a visible witness to our community with our love. Acts chapter 20 and 1 Corinthians 16 tells us the early Christians began meeting on the first day of the week to represent the Lord's day of his resurrection, his completed work. And that seems to be an excellent practice. I like meeting on Sundays. It's a good day for me. But we should note that Christians met on other days of the week too. Like in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, tells us at times they were so excited that they met every day. But brother or sister, I'm going to plead that you must be present at the gathering for your spiritual health. You cannot do church at home by yourself. It's not enough that you merely listen to a sermon. You need other believers' interaction in your life. You need to participate in the Lord's Supper. You are only damaging your sanctification, and you may even be in jeopardy of exhibiting no faith by excluding yourself. The writer of Hebrews warned in chapter 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. We need to gather regularly with our brothers and sisters. We need to help each other prevent the sin that can be in our lives. We need to get together and sing the gospel together. We need to pray the gospel together. We need to speak the gospel to one another. It is what will sustain us until the Lord comes. Second, when the church gathers for the purpose of being the Lord's people, we should be guided in what we do by the Bible. If this is to be the Lord's day, then we should be guided by the Scriptures and be careful not to add anything to our gatherings that would distract from worship. The Puritans called this the regular principle. Our worship practices should be regulated by the Bible. And some would say, specifically the New Testament. Now, I agree with that in principle. But I would need to say, we need to be careful here that the regulative principle remains just that, a principle and not a law. 
I don't think that its purpose is to dictate what types of instruments can be used in a worship service, whether or not we can substitute juice for wine, or be applied to times when the church assembles outside of formal worship. But it makes sense to ask ourselves, what does God want us to do when we gather together to worship Him? And third, how you celebrate a Sabbath day should be less about what you shouldn't be doing and more about what you're supposed to do. If the purpose is to set a day aside to meditate and contemplate on what God has done for us through His Son, Christ Jesus, then that should be our focus for the day. What are you doing to enhance thinking upon the finished work of Christ? What are you doing to create longing in your heart for our final rest when we come face to face with the Lord of the Sabbath? I say this because we can't often find ourselves becoming guilty, right? Guilty of trying to satisfy our needs and our longings with things of the world. Even on the day that we say we set aside for the Lord. Attending the worship service is a good start, but what about what happens afterwards? I'm not sure binge-watching Netflix will do much of that for you. What are you doing even beforehand, before you come on Sunday mornings to enhance your worship? What are you doing to create a sense of awe in your Creator? There are many ways to do this, from, from gospel conversations to taking a walk to reading a good book, eating a meal with your brothers and sisters, just to name a few. I, I'm even going to advocate, brothers and sisters, some of you just need to take a good nap on a Sunday afternoon. I find that there is no more God-glorifying thing that you can do than to lay your head down and rest knowing that God is sovereignly in control. It's something I struggle with. I've, I've mentioned it here from, from the pulpit. I have to remind myself of that for me to get a good night's sleep. Otherwise, my mind will become consumed with worry. So I find sleep to be a faith-building exercise for me. I'm sure some of you are like, honey, I'm sorry. I've got to go build my faith right now. So you, go, you take care of the kids. All right. You should share that responsibility together, that privilege together. But don't allow this world to rob you of your joy of contemplating your God and his marvelous salvation of your soul. Don't allow the world to rob you of that. Take the time to set aside, to be focused on leading your family in a devotion or a hymn or a song, something that would draw their minds and their spirits to say, what a great God we have. What a great salvation we have in which we are resting in this alone. And then my 3.5 point. I have to say, I can't stop myself. I'm, I'm a preacher. I got to do it. Today, do not harden your heart if you hear his voice. If you've heard of this excellent salvation and it's making sense to you, the Holy Spirit saying you need that, you need to rest in what Christ has done. Today, that was the point of the passage. Today, rest in that. Seek that. Your brothers and sisters that are in this room, or, or if you're not a believer, my brothers and sisters that are in this room, they want to tell you about it. They want to share this with you. They want to tell you about this glorious gospel. But if you are sensing it, let today be the day of your salvation. Let's pray.
Lord, in just a minute, our, our, I know our brother Brian's getting ready to come and lead us in the supper. And Lord, what a fitting end that as we celebrate the supper that we would think upon what Christ has done on our behalf and that that should give us rest. Because Lord, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot work hard enough. We are that sinful. But you have blessed us with the glorious gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. The work is finished. It is done. Just like it was completed on the sixth or the seventh day, it is finished and it is done now and you are reigning victoriously. And we long for that Sabbath rest. We are looking forward when you will restore and make all things anew once again. And we will live and we will dwell with you. And in the midst of that, there will no longer be any sinfulness that will inhibit our communion with you. So Lord, let us on this day marvel at what you have done on our behalf. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.